3: Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So in 2012, this little farming village in Spain called Sodeto was struggling. And there had been this downturn in the economy. There was also this massive drought. And the town's homeowner association was running short on cash. But for some reason, they decided to spend what was left of their dues on the Christmas lottery. I, I guess this is kind of a Spanish tradition and the whole country gets into it. But they bought tickets for the whole town.
2: Wow. You know, I've actually heard about the Christmas lottery. I think we wrote about it a while back, and, of course, it being such a big deal in Spain. I actually saw this one study where people were so optimistic around the time of the Christmas lottery, like even though they know they're most likely not going to win, but that optimism actually changes their opinions of politicians. And so whoever's running for re-election at the time, even if they're overwhelmingly disliked, they end up getting this big bounce because of this.
3: Oh, that's crazy, but... Going back to this town, they were actually really lucky. They played. The village won $950 million, and it got split oh, up among wow. the town's 70 families. Yeah, so, like, there were these unemployed construction workers or down-on-their-luck farmers, and they all walked away like millionaires or at the very least 100000 heirs. But uh, yeah. everyone except one guy, that is. And he was this Greek gentleman who was down on his luck. He'd, he'd moved to the town for a woman, and they'd just broken up. And I guess he just wasn't interested in playing and losing money, so so he didn't get to cash in. Oh,
2: man, what a bummer. So he's the only one who didn't participate?
3: Yeah, I mean, things ended up kind of all right for him. Like he'd been trying to sell his barn there. And before the lottery, no one had money to buy it. But once they did, suddenly everyone was clamoring to purchase his barn. So (laughs) (laughs) he ended up with a real estate deal. But today's show is all about the lottery. How do statisticians outfox the system? And why should you care if you find Herbert Hoover on your lotto ticket? So let's dive in.
2: Hey there, podcast listeners, welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Ticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, hunched over the fattest stack of Georgia Lotto scratchers I think I've ever seen. I feel like he <laughs> might have bought all of them, Mango, but that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. You know, the other thing I've noticed... This guy loves scratching these things, Mango. Have you been watching him over here?
3: Yeah, he actually is using this special scratch-off tool. It's shaped like a little ice scraper, but it goes on your key ring. I, I think he got it off Etsy, but <laughs> I think he has it just in case of lotto
2: emergencies. <laughs> well, you never know what's going to happen, and, and I do wish you luck, Tristan. But the truth is, winning the lottery is a universally accepted long shot. Like, it's right up there with being struck by lightning or crushed by a meteor, Except in the case of winning the lotto, your odds are actually much, much worse. You know, yet despite that, despite knowing the odds are ridiculously long, millions of people around the world will still pony up for lotteries every single year. So with that in mind, we thought it'd be interesting to explore the psychology behind why people play the lottery, including how playing changes lives. Plus, along the way, we'll check out the stories of a few enterprising gamblers who found pretty clever ways to game the system and beat those odds, But before we get to that, I I know you did some digging this week into Mm -hmm. the history of lotteries. So uh, can you fill us in just a little bit on that before we get to anything else?
3: Yeah. So what's crazy is that lotteries are basically as old as arithmetic. And you can actually find stories of lotteries in the Bible. In, In fact, the first lotteries weren't really about winning prize money. Like in the Old Testament, there are all these references to land lotteries. And Moses actually used one to divvy up portions of the promised land along the Jordan River Scholars think this worked similar to how we play Powerball. Like, the tribes of Israel would have each taken a differently shaped or marked stone and dropped it into a clay pot or maybe wrapped it up in a piece of cloth. And then they would have shaken up all the stones and drawn one for each piece of land on the docket. But ancient lotteries also had these other uses. Like in the 6th century BC, Athenians chose most of their government officials through sortition, which is actually a term for when political representatives are selected at random by people casting or drawing
2: lots. Which seems like a weird fit for that to have been in in, in Athens. I mean, wasn't Athens like the birthplace of democracy?
3: Yeah, and and that's actually the thing. Like, the Athenians actually viewed the lottery as more democratic than elections. And their thinking was that, you know, politicians or wealthy citizens could easily rig the outcomes of elections. And to them, sortition just seemed like the safer option. So while Athens did hold elections for a few positions, the bulk of the appointments were simply left to chance. And the way it worked was that any free man over the age of 18 was entered into a lottery— And if their name was drawn, they would either be assigned a term as a juror or as a member of the citizen council.
2: I'm curious, like, how exactly did they run this lottery? I mean, it sounds like they were trying to sort through and pick from a lot of people, right?
3: Yeah, and and it wasn't done Powerball style. They actually had a special device called a claritarian. It's to help ensure that the draws were as random as possible. And it was basically this massive stone slab, and it had these tiny slots in it for— putting tokens in, and each token identified a different person in the lottery, and then they had this long tube connected to the side of the slab, and when officials poured a bunch of black and white pebbles into the tube, I mean, this is ingenious, the pebbles would just scatter across the slab and land on different tokens, and that indicated who would receive positions and who would be dismissed, and I don't know, it kind of feels like something out of the Flintstones Price is Right.
2: That's pretty great. Yeah, actually, lotteries are so much more fun when they include these weird gadgets or Honestly, these, like, overly complicated systems Uh (laughs) for choosing their winners. And just in doing your other digging, did you find any other early examples of of weirdness like this?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think you would have liked the lottery-style game that they played in China during the Han Dynasty. It was typically played on, I guess, a white ticket. And players would select, like, a series of numbers of characters. And if their picks were chosen in the random drawing, then they'd be sent a prize. But this is where it gets special, right? Because how do you communicate the winning numbers when all your players are spread out across
2: a bunch of rural villages? All right. Well, we're talking ancient China. So I'm going to go with, I don't know, like a fireworks display or something? I mean, that would be so fun,
3: right, to watch these fireworks sort of reveal the answers. But fireworks were still a few centuries away at this point. So instead, these Chinese governments used birds to deliver the results to villages. Like they had a whole fleet of carrier pigeons that would carry the results from village to village. And then they'd also collect the winning tickets along the way. And, in fact, this is actually where the game got its original name, Baj Piao. I, I know I'm pronouncing that wrong, but roughly translated, it's called a White Pigeon Ticket.
2: Hmm. I mean, that's pretty cool. So do people still play this White Pigeon Ticket game today? They do, except
3: now the game has been rebranded as Kino. They've, I guess, stripped the pigeons out of the game, which feels like a major loss to me. But, oh, that's a huge mistake, um, yeah. But Kino's still a huge moneymaker for casinos. Even 2,000 years ago, the game was this big financial windfall for China. It was supposedly invented by a warlord who's named uh, Cheng Lung. He'd been uh, looking for a way to get citizens to help fund his army, and selling those white pigeon tickets proved a great way to do just that. Pretty soon, the game was being used to fund not just the military, but all sorts of other public works projects. And in fact, one version of the game supposedly helped pay for the Great Wall of China.
2: You know, that was one of the most surprising things as we were doing our research for this week, was realizing how many of these huge projects were funded by lotteries. I was actually reading just recently about Colonial America and that it was largely built using revenue from lotteries. Like, uh, apparently lotteries had made their way to America's shore's I think it was back in the 16th century, and this was really around the same time that they were catching on in Europe. So I guess in places like Italy and France and England, they'd they'd all borrowed a page from China's playbook because you know they realized that lotteries were a smart way to raise money for these various civic projects. And so it, it's kind of crazy how early it was being used in America too. You look back around 1612, you had the Virginia Company of London. They actually held a lottery to support the struggling Jamestown colony and. And really used it to save the settlers there from starvation.
4: But oh, well. it was
2: used in these other pivotal moments, too. Like, you know, 1776, you had the Constitutional Congress holding a lottery to finance soldiers for the Revolutionary War. And then even after the war was won, the new states relied on these lotteries for much more of their revenue. And, you know, after all, unfair taxation had been a big part of the war. So you can see why this alternative way to raise money was so appealing to politicians. Sure. It was... You know, just so much easier than creating a new tax. I mean,
3: it's funny because people often refer to the lottery as, I don't know, like, like a voluntary tax.
2: Yeah, and you know, that's actually how one of the founding fathers felt about lotteries, too. And I'm talking about Thomas Jefferson here, and he wrote a good bit about it. So once he wrote about it, he said, um, Far from being immoral, they are indispensable to the existence of man. They're a tax laid on the willing only. Uh, Of course, Jefferson was more than a little bit biased in this situation. I mean, that quote comes from a letter that he was writing to the Virginia legislature. And he was writing this because he was looking for permission to hold his own lottery. And I was actually looking into (laughs) why he was doing this. And the whole reason he wanted to do it was to pay off some of his debts. It's pretty, pretty funny. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, but you know what's weird is that there's this whole idea that lotteries are really kind of this voluntary tax, right? Like it's it's only a tax if you're willing to buy in, but there's actually pretty strong evidence that suggests that longtime lotto players are induced to play a game that maybe they otherwise wouldn't. So explain that a little. Like, what do you mean by that? All right. Well, it might be helpful just to give a little bit of background on who's playing the lottery. So I was looking at this information from Gallup and It was showing that nearly half of all U.S. adults have played a state lottery at least once in their lives. That's not that surprising. But then if you look a little bit closer, the vast majority of those tickets are bought by just 20% of the population. And as you might guess, most of those players who make up that 20% are actually among the poorest in the country. In fact, according to a study from Duke, this was done back in the 1980s, the poorest third of American households buy roughly half of the lottery tickets that are sold. But there's more recent data, and this is what's even more disturbing, is that on average, households that make less than $12,000 a year spend a full 5% of their incomes on lotteries. 5% of their incomes oh. on lotteries. It's, it's, it's pretty tragic to see that.
3: That's horrifying. So, I, I mean, there are so many things that work against the poor. Like, I was reading about, I'm pretty sure it was Chicago, but it was about parking tickets where if you get a ticket and you don't pay in time, the price automatically skyrockets. And if you can't pay that, they boot your car or take away your license, which then makes it harder to get to your job to pay that ticket. And that's actually been driving a ton of bankruptcies in the city. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess if you're desperate and you're looking for a fast fix for your financial troubles, Like, playing the lottery seems like the quickest way out. At least that's how I think about it. But it it sounds like you're saying it's more than that. Like, these people are actually being misled or maybe duped or something.
2: Yeah. And, you know, this actually goes back to a 2008 study. You like the number of studies I'm quoting today? I'm just (laughs) briefed on all (laughs) these studies. I kind of came armed with them. But this was a group of behavioral economists there at Carnegie Mellon. And so what they were looking to is – is is it really like the reason why poor people are so much more likely to play the lottery than those who are better off? And what they found was that a lot of the desire that drives these low-income players isn't so much from being poor as it is from feeling poor. So here's how the study's authors broke down their findings. It says, um, in experiment one, participants were more likely to purchase lottery tickets when they were primed to perceive that their own income was low relative to the implicit standard. And then in experiment two, Participants purchase more lottery tickets when they considered non-lottery situations in which rich people or poor people receive advantages, implicitly highlighting the fact that everyone has an equal chance of winning the lottery.
3: So basically, when you make people feel poor, they play the lottery more. And when they feel like it's equal, like then, then they want to put money on it because they feel like it's a fair game. I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking when you think about how low their chances of
2: winning actually are, though, right? Yeah, and I actually found yet another study, and this comes from the uh, the late '80s. (laughs) You're stacking up studies. (laughs) I'm I'm coming with so many of them. I have almost as many studies as Tristan has scratch-off tickets. Not quite, but anyway, this one's a good one too. So this was also in the late '80s, and the researchers discovered that lottery ticket sales in California they rise along with the poverty rate. But movie ticket sales actually don't. And so what that says is that people don't just play the lottery for fun. They're, they're playing it out of desperation. So, you know, all too often the lottery becomes a way for states to shift the cost of government services from, you know, from the wealthier citizens on to, honestly, like the most hopeless ones.
3: All right. Well, now that you've got us all righteously indignant about the lottery, here's what I want to talk about. Nerdy geniuses who outfoxed the system and made the lotto <laughs> pay out big time.
2: All right. That sounds like a good idea. But before we do that, let's take a quick break.
4: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles and Chicago combined.
2: you're listening to part-time genius and we're talking about some of the most brazen lottery scams in history all right mango so let's live vicariously for a minute through some of these uh, lotto legends so who, who do you want to talk about first
3: Okay, so first I've got to tell you about Mohan Srivastava. He is this MIT-trained statistician who actually found a flaw in a certain scratch-off game from the Ontario Lottery. And this effectively allowed him to predict winning cards about 90% of the time. Oh, wow. So what's his story? So, Moen wasn't really interested in playing the lotto, much less exploiting it. But one day, and this was back in 2003, he found some old scratch-offs on his desk that had been part of this gag gift I guess someone gave him. And on a whim, he scratched off one and won $3. So, he's walking to cash in his ticket on his lunch break. And as he's thinking about it, he started thinking about how scratch-offs must be made, right? And it dawned on him that the tickets are obviously
2: mass-produced which means that a computer program must be
3: involved in laying out the numbers on each
2: ticket. Yeah, I get that, but it's all random, isn't it? Like, that's probably another reason ticket makers use a computer, because there's no way a human could actually design that many tickets and still keep the numbering completely random, right? Sure, but Moen realized that the computers can't be generating
3: truly random numbers either. Like, if they were, that would mean the lottery company had no control over the actual number of winning tickets produced. And if that were the case, it would mean that some ticket packets would have very few winners or maybe even none at all. And obviously it would be tough to get retailers and also players to keep buying those tickets if so many of those cards were duds.
2: Okay, that, that, that makes sense. So if the tickets, like, they, they kind of, have to have the illusion of randomness while actually being incredibly ordered beneath the surface. Is is that what you're saying?
3: Exactly. And once Moen figured this out, he decided to try and crack the algorithm that generated all those numbers, you know, just for fun because he was from MIT and a statistician. Right, of so course. So he sat down to study this one tic-tac-toe scratch-off game he'd been playing. And after just a few hours, he discovered that the visible numbers on the ticket – actually dictated which digits were hidden under the latex coding. So basically, every ticket had like eight tic-tac-toe game boards on it. And each board would contain some visible numbers. But if you look to see how many times those numbers repeated on the card, and mostly it was if a number was a singleton and not repeating, you could actually tell which cards were winners. And the prize money could be anywhere between $3
2: and $50,000. Okay. All right. I mean, I know it all sounds complicated, but what I find so fascinating about this is is you're saying Moen basically found a way to determine if a ticket was a winner without having to scratch anything off. And that's right. And you're saying he got this trick to work like ninety percent of the time? The guy must have made a fortune. So that's the weirdest
3: part. Moen really did this for the love of math and not money. In fact, once he was sure his technique worked, he actually contacted the Ontario Lottery Gaming Corporation and told them about the flaw he'd found. And it's funny because he told NPR that he was playing telephone tag with the lottery. And when they finally got to talk to one another, they kind of didn't believe him. So he sent them 20 unscratched cards and separated them into what he thought would be winning cards and duds. Hmm. And when they scratched them off and realized he predicted correctly, that's when they called him
2: back. Oh, man. I bet he felt pretty awesome about that. (laughs) that. That's pretty wild.
3: Yeah. I mean, he later discovered the problem wasn't exclusive to Ontario. I mean, it kind of makes sense, right? It turned out the same trick was also being employed in Colorado. Though, when he analyzed those cards, he could only figure them out with 70% accuracy.
2: I mean, that's still pretty impressive. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as as nice as it was for Moen to come clean about his discovery, I feel like that's certainly not how most attempts to game the lottery turn out. And I was just looking at some other cases. You know, if you, you take the case of Jerry and Marge Selby, for instance, and this comes from this great story by Jason Fagoni, and and we actually had Jason on the program earlier this year to talk about his book. It was called uh, The Woman Who Smashed Codes.
3: I mean, that was honestly one of my favorite episodes. It's so fascinating, and
2: my mom just bought that book because she loved Jason so much, but uh, t- tell me about the Selvies. All right, so they're from Michigan, and they were basically among the first players to find a flaw in a state lottery game. The game was called Windfall. And this was back in 2003, and it came down to this unique quirk in windfalls rules. Namely, whenever the jackpot would rise to roughly $2 million or so without anybody winning it, the payoffs for smaller prizes increased dramatically. So basically, if a player waited until this so-called roll-down period, which typically lasted for a few days every three months or so, they would stand to win more than they lost, and of course this is on average. And so if they were to buy an especially high number of tickets during that roll down, say like, you know, $100,000 worth, then they would be practically guaranteed to turn a 10 to 15% profit.
3: Okay, so the more tickets a player buys during the special period, the more money they're kind of assured to win. So
2: I'm curious, how many
3: tickets did Jerry and Marge go in on?
2: It was unbelievable, the number of tickets. I mean, they basically treated Windfall like their retirement plan, and they played for the better part of a decade. In fact, Michigan retired the game only for Massachusetts to roll out their own version soon after. And so the Selby's actually took their ticket-buying operation on the road. (laughs) What they would do is they'd they'd just pile into their truck, they'd drive the 12 hours or so to Massachusetts, and then they'd set up shop in two separate convenience stores, printing ream after ream of tickets for, honestly, for hours at a time.
3: So... I've been stuck in bodegas behind people playing the lotto, and it's so frustrating. Like, you can be there for, like, 10 minutes or 15 minutes. It can take forever when you're in a rush. But how many tickets are we actually talking about here?
2: You are not going to believe this. So at the height of their scheme, the couple was spending over $600,000 on a single play (laughs) of windfall. Keep this in mind. We're talking $2 a pop here. So that means they had more than 300,000 tickets that week. (laughs) That's insane. So
3: I— I'm always nervous when I see people gambling and gambling with such ridiculous amounts of money. Like, I'm so afraid they're going to lose it. And, you know, my my favorite thing to do in Las Vegas is to go up to an ATM and act like I've won when it spits out cash because (laughs) I do not want to get ripped off by machines. But obviously, these people are made of much stronger stuff than
2: I am. So how much
3: did they end up making?
2: Well, the Selby's actually didn't play alone, at least not the whole time. There was one point where they started this company called GS Investment Strategies. I love that that's the name (laughs) of their company for some reason. It's an
3: investing firm.
2: (laughs) I know. So basically it was a betting group that consisted of the Selby's and their extended family and friends. And just looking at the the list of people in this, it's pretty funny. It included a state trooper, a parole officer, three lawyers, among all these others that were playing. And at their final tally, they managed to net almost $8 million. It was just shy of $8 million before taxes. And- of course, all that was divvied up among the company's 25 players. So really not a bad haul for nine years of printing out these slips of paper. But you know, it actually it was a little bit short of what this small group of MIT students managed to win. And this was off the very same game. This was between 2004 and 2010. The students made actually just a little bit over $8 million in profit.
3: So I, I'm still kind of blown away that this happened. I mean, like, why didn't the lottery commissions of these states wise up to what was happening? You've got these multiple groups of people pulling off the same scheme for like a decade and obviously buying massive amounts of tickets.
2: Well, I mean, this may be the weirdest part of all of this is that somebody did notice. And this was in 2012. There was an investigation into the windfall game. And, and that investigation revealed that the Massachusetts lottery had known all about the MIT students and the Selby's for years, what? but had <laughs> actually done nothing to stop them. Apparently, lottery officials had bent the rules so that the high-stakes players could buy hundreds of thousands of tickets because, you know, the added revenue and the success this brought to the lottery and, of course, by extension to the state, they just considered it worth it. But, you know, in, in the end, even though none of this was technically illegal, the state treasurer who oversees the lottery, they officially shut down the windfall game in 2012. And, of course, this put an end to the players' long winning streak at that point.
3: Yeah, but I mean, they made $8 million off it, so it's not that bad. Yeah. It is stunning that they figured this out, but it also seems to suggest that, like, once you find a game that's beatable, you need lots of money to win, right? Like, these MIT students, the Selby's, they all had the resources to buy up hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tickets, which is what allowed them to win as often as they did. Meanwhile, you know, the people who couldn't afford enough tickets to gain that statistical advantage, they're kind of shut out. And— Not only that, but it's really the poor folks' money that's going to all the payouts. You know, that said, I I mean, I I don't want to give the impression that lotteries are a zero-sum game for society. Like, Like we were saying at the top of the show, you know, countries have been putting lottery revenue to good use for centuries, and that's still true today. So even if you feel squeamish about who these games might be targeting like I do, it's still worth taking a look at the benefits that come from them.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. But but before we get to that, let's take one more quick break.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect.
2: All right, Mango. So, clue us in. where exactly does all this lottery money go?
3: Well, first, let's clarify how much money we're talking about here. So, when you actually add up all the revenue from the modern US lottery industry, all the sales, you know, from cash drawings, the instant win scratch offs, video lottery games, Kino, like you wind up with a yearly total of $80 billion.
2: Oh, my gosh. Isn't that
3: stunning? And, and just to put that in perspective, movie ticket sales in the U.S. add up to only about $11 billion annually. In fact, that $80 billion is more than Americans spend every year, not only on movie tickets, but also on sports tickets, books, video games, music sales, all of that combined.
2: That's crazy. All right, so obviously we love to gamble, and that must mean <laughs> that we're getting something out of the deal, right? So how much of that $80 billion ends up in the players' pockets? It's way more than you'd
3: think. Like, I was actually surprised to hear this, but over $50 billion of that total goes to
2: players in the form of prizes. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And, and then another $8 billion is used to cover the cost of the lotteries themselves. So... Like, this is the boring stuff like printing, advertising, design, employee salaries, vendor fees. But the remaining $22 billion, which, you know, is still a ton of money, is funneled into public programs. And that includes everything from education and land conservation to senior assistance and
2: even pension funds. Well, and obviously different states will claim different amounts of that profit depending on their individual sales numbers. But... But it's up to each state to decide what to do with their profits.
3: Yeah, that's right. So there are currently uh, lotteries in 47 different U.S. jurisdictions, which includes 44 states plus um, D.C. is on there, uh, Puerto Rico, the Virgin Islands. And they each get to use their money for whatever they want. So education budgets are probably the most popular choice, like the Virginia Lottery, for example. It actually puts all of its profits into a to K-12 education fund. And last year, our lottery right here in Georgia actually gave out a billion dollars in profits to education programs, compared to the two point seven billion it gave out in prizes to players.
2: Wow, I mean, you know, there's no denying that state-run lotteries can deliver pretty big benefits to their citizens, at, at least generally speaking. And And again, it's easy to see why most politicians would want to keep that easy money flowing through their states. Sure. But on a different
3: note, one of the things that's really fun to hear about is the individual lottery winners who actually share their wealth. And I was reading about this guy named John Cootie who split a $320 million payout with six other IT specialists. And this was back in 2011.
2: I mean, that sounds nice, but you're saying seven IT guys won the jackpot. I I feel like that (laughs) has to be some kind of fix like with the MIT students, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's possible. But considering what Cootie did with his money, like I, I wouldn't hold it against him. He and his wife actually decided to use a good chunk of their winnings to build this massive water park for the community, and this was in uh, Green Island, New York. They called it Spray Park, and it's dedicated to Cootie's parents, who apparently used to take their kids into this, uh, I guess, outdated
2: water park in the community, and that's the one he helped replace. That's pretty sweet, and I I do love these kinds of stories. I was actually reading about another lotto-winning couple. They were named Alan and Violet Large, and They won about $11 million back in 2010, and they ended up giving away 98% of it within the first year. Is that not crazy?
3: Yeah, I mean, 98% is a lot of percent. So where did that money go?
2: (laughs) Well, according to an article in the Toronto Star, the couple donated nearly all of their winnings to the Red Cross, to their local churches, fire departments, and even the hospitals where Violet had undergone cancer treatment. And, of course, while while parting with that much loot is painful for, you know, so many of us to even think about, it was apparently pretty easy for the larges. There was this interview I was looking at where Violet told reporters, what you've never had, you never miss. I mean, it
3: really is amazing to see people react to newfound wealth so humbly like that. Um, spe- speaking of humility, did did you hear about this homeless guy in Illinois who won $50,000 on a scratcher? No. Apparently, he'd lived in a tent in a homeless community for like 35 years at this point, and that's when he won the money. But rather than leave his friends for a comfy home of his own, he decided to
2: stay right where he was. Wait, so he just stayed in his tent?
3: Yeah. He, he told reporters that he planned to use the money for an overdue trip to the dentist, and he also wanted to use some of the money to visit his son. But then he gave $100 to every homeless person he knew, and I'm guessing he knew a lot of them.
2: Wow. All right, so this is kind of a tangent, but you made me think of it when you brought up Scratchers again, and we've been talking about the bright side of playing the lottery throughout this segment, but there's actually a way to get enjoyment from lotteries without playing them, and the best part is it won't cost you a dime. So uh, what's the catch? Actually, there's no catch. All you have to do is become a lotologist, and if by some chance you don't already know what a lotologist is, I can tell you that it's a person who collects lottery tickets. (laughs) So how does that cost no money? Well, because it's a collecting hobby. It's not a gambling hobby. So most litologists don't collect fresh or unused scratch cards. They're actually collecting losing tickets or maybe even winner's tickets that have already been redeemed by the customers.
3: (laughs) So how many litologists are there? I feel like you keep saying
2: they, but to me, it feels like one person in his parents' basement. (laughs) Well, according to the Global Lottery Collectors Society, you, you may not have been <laughs> familiar with the Global Lottery Collectors Society. There's not. a group of a few hundred passionate collectors who trade and catalog all these various scratch-off games released in the U.S. And this one guy in particular, his name is Arthur Rain, and he has one of the biggest collections in the world. He's got over 57,000 different scratchers in his collection.
3: So uh, that's pretty crazy.
2: But I did notice you said one of the biggest. So what's that mean exactly? Well, apparently there are one or two other people in the society with bigger collections, which I know is is pretty hard to believe.
3: (laughs) So I'm curious now, like, is there a holy grail for litologists? Like, is there one special scratch off that everyone would spend money on?
2: Yeah, there definitely is. According to Rain, the most sought-after scratcher is this 1976 card. And it was from Illinois, and it has Herbert Hoover's picture on it. Apparently, it was part of a promotion where each ticket featured a different president. And once the game was over, the lottery picked one president. And anybody who submitted a losing ticket with that president's face on it would be entered to win a consolation prize. Well, Herbert Hoover ended up as the lucky president, and because so many players mailed him in, there aren't many Hoovers left in circulation. In fact, if you're lucky to find one of the three or four copies known to exist and you want to add it to your collection, it'll set you back about 500 bucks to do so.
3: <laughs> I love that it's only worth $500. But, I mean, it is a 40-year-old losing lottery ticket. Yep. <laughs>
2: But I am curious,
3: though, if the Hoover card is this exception to the rule, how are litologists getting the bulk of their collections? I mean, I, I get that they trade with each other, but they've got to start out with something to trade,
2: right? Yeah, of course, that's true. I mean, so, so many collectors actually have deals with a whole network of stores. So they'll, you know, make their rounds once a week or so, and they'll collect all the used tickets that a store's customers just left behind.
3: It's such a specific hobby. It sounds amazing. You, you know, it, it, it kind of reminds me of our friend Sarah who used to find business cards on sidewalks or I guess at convention floors and and collect them. And I think her big idea was that someday she was going to throw a party for all these people who wanted to network and get their name out there. But <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's it, a great idea. I know. I, I think it's great. Like I'd love to... I should start leaving my uh, business card places. But <laughs> I, I mean, at least like a business card has value. I, I can't imagine keeping 50,000 of anything in my house you know
2: where do you even find the room for that well that's what's funny about it. i read this interview with rain from atlas obscura and, and in it he says i gotta beg my wife every day not to throw me out of the house <laughs> so i mean I, i'd say the fact that it hasn't happened already
3: makes him pretty lucky and speaking of lucky well, what do you say we get a little fact off going I, i've got a can't lose feeling today
2: all right well let's see what you got
3: So, well, did you know that pigeons love to gamble? According to Scientific American, scientists at the University of Kentucky set up these avian gambling parlors where pigeons could peck at one symbol and reliably get a single food pellet. And this happened every single time. Or they had the option to peck at a second symbol, and this was a wild card. And most of the times they'd get nothing, but every once in a while they'd hit the jackpot and they'd get ten food pellets that big payout was actually way too much for them to resist. So whenever they were given a choice, the pigeons chose to gamble. And this was more than 80% of the time, <laughs> even though the winnings were way less when you averaged them out.
2: Hmm. That's pretty good. All right, well, in Europe, and particularly Italy, There's a tradition where the lottery is drawn by blindfolded kids, which seems like kind of a weird tradition. And and, (laughs) the idea here is that children are innocent. So this is a game you can supposedly trust, although I feel like there have been so many studies showing that children are not at all honest on this kind of (laughs) thing. But anyway, but this was before things were automated back in the 2000s. and. As it turns out, not surprisingly, the kids were part of a massive scam. They'd actually been trained to feel for these roughed-up lottery balls. And when the journalist who broke the scandal started looking into this, they found that the kids were being paid in toys. (laughs)
3: So I love the idea that, like, you can actually fix a multi-million lottery with, I don't know, like some teddy bears and an
2: erector set. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Be great.
3: Did you realize that it's way harder to win McDonald's Monopoly game than it is to win an actual lottery? And Mm-mm. apparently the odds of winning Powerball are 1 in 175 million. So already you're more likely to die on the way to playing a lotto than you are to winning it. But that 1 in 175 million is great odds compared to the odds of finding a boardwalk piece which is one in 600 million. And when you factor in also finding a park place, your odds of winning go down to one in three billion. Isn't that insane?
2: (laughs) Wow, that's pretty great. All right, well, in 1912, Popular Mechanics reported that a hospital in Paris had held a lottery. But they actually were giving out something a little different than money. They were giving out babies. Like if you won, (laughs) you won a baby, which is, I don't know, it feels like kind of a dubious (laughs) prize for a lot of people, but... It's the only time we know of that this has happened. But the hospital, they not only consulted authorities, but they actually made sure to research whether a winning couple was actually good to be foster parents before they handed them a baby. (laughs) I guess
3: that sounds smart. So this feels like such luck. But when Zimbabwe ran a lottery in 2000, the dictator and president of Zimbabwe at the time, Robert Mugabe, just happened to win it. Like he won the grand prize of $100,000 in the state-run lottery.
2: And it's kind of amazing how that happened. Yeah, just such a lucky guy, (laughs) I guess. All right. All right, so I've got one more fun one. So you remember how there were all those Volkswagen commercials that were trying to gamify good behavior a while back, right? Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, in the 2000s.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like, they, you know, they made those trash cans that would blink and flash whenever you put your litter in them and— I remember one of the others, they had those musical steps that made sounds when you used them instead of the elevator. And it was all these little bits of joy that were there to encourage you to do good things, either for you or for society. Well, one of the ideas that actually got implemented in Sweden was when they set up the lottery at traffic lights. So, you know, when you run a red light, there are all these places where cameras will catch you and then send you a ticket in mm-hmm. the mail. Well, well, they actually turned that into a lottery for good drivers. So... Whenever you slowed down and stopped, you were automatically put into a lottery. And then the winners were paid out with money that came from speeding fines. Isn't that a great idea? I love it. You know, for
3: all my hubris going into this, I, I, I do think you get to walk away with the prize this week.
2: Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'm sure we forgot some great facts about lotteries over the years, and we would love to hear those from you. You can always email us, part genius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7-FACT hotline. That's 866-PT-GENIUS. Or as always, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
3: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
2: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing.